The following messages were presented during the Friends of Israel 2008 Prophecy Conferences. It should be noted that a few of our speakers presented their messages with the aid of PowerPoint. I would like to, uh, to spend the time that I have with you tonight and tomorrow morning uh, focusing in on what I believe is a very deliberate and instructive and challenging set of, uh, well, almost a set of bookends on the biblical narrative of fallen human culture. Uh, it, it, it is absolutely remarkable to me. And what I'd like to do is contrast, compare and contrast, really set over against each other, the record of the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, and then compare that to two of the most remarkable chapters in the New Testament, and that is Revelation 17 and 18. And I'll tell you ahead of time where I am taking you, just so that it's very, very clear. In the first chapter of the record, the biblical record of the fallen culture in which we live, immediately after the flood, as men overspread the earth, you have this sorry, sorry narrative in Genesis chapter 11 of the, of, of, of the Tower of Babel. And I believe that it is entirely instructive. By the way, James tells us that he who would be a friend of the world makes himself what? An enemy of God. There is a world which we need to know, which we need to be able to recognize, and which we must flee. John describes that world rather succinctly, that cosmos, that satanic, demonic arrangement of things which so dominates our culture and which so easily produce, proves seductive in our own lives. He describes it as the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. But I would submit to you that, that, that the world takes shape before our eyes. The fallen world, the culture, the fallen rebellious culture uh, takes shape before our eyes there in Genesis chapter 11. And it can be subsumed under this. Go to let us build us what? A city and a tower. Now I'm going to argue that the city is commercialism. It is the notion that indeed man's life does consist in that which he possesses. It is the notion that all the allurements and uh, uh, attractions of this world can provide real satisfaction. So there is the city. And then there is the tower, the ziggurat, the, 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 the religious, uh, uh, the, the, the center of false religion. And here's my point, and see if I can make my point just by way of anticipation, then I'll develop it. It is so fascinating to me that in Genesis chapter 11, as we see, as I say, fallen culture taking shape before our eyes, it can be subsumed under this heading, a city and a tower. And then in the book of Revelation, I'll develop this in just a little bit, just before Jesus descends, as we have gone through all of the, the record of that coming uh, awful period of time that we know as the tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble, the 70th week of Daniel, all of it is unfolded, and yet before the Son of Man, the white horse rider, actually descends to deliver his covenant people, you have this remarkable time out in chapter 17 and 18. And in chapter 17... You have the destruction of religious Babylon. That's the tower. And in chapter 18, you have the destruction of commercial Babylon. That's the city. 
And I think you have a very, very deliberate bookend is what I'm saying to you. Now let me, let me try and develop it for you. I'd ask you to go to Genesis chapter 11. The reason I decided it would be good to uh, just do a quick handout, and it's really only for tonight, is because I'm, I'm going to make some, I'm going to make a case rather hastily. And uh, uh, I don't, uh, I, it, it's, there's a lot here, and I thought it, rather than trying to expect you to get it all on the fly, I would just print it out for you. I'll not go through it care, you know, point by point, but I hope it'll be some help. Well, this is the way I've broken it down, a city and a tower. As a matter of fact, you could say, and you know, by the way, there are a number of times in the Bible uh, what are called inclusios or chiasms. It's a literary device, but, uh, but, but a, 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 a grand literary narrative will be bookended and oftentimes it'll be A, B, and then B, A. You know what I'm saying? It gets out backwards. So I think you have the city and the tower, and then you have the tower and the city. And it's God's way of introducing us to the dynamics in Genesis 11 of what our fallen culture is all about, fundamentally, most basically, and then rejoicing over the fact that in, indeed God is going to wipe all of that from the face of the earth. Well, let me take you first of all to what I call there the former bookend. Am I making sense to you? The very beginning. Now, now, now understand that this is immediately after the flood. I would submit to you that what Genesis 3 is to the biblical description of fallen mankind, Genesis 11 is to the biblical description of fallen human culture. That make sense to you? To be sure, we know by reason of Genesis 3 and the fallen Adam that we are all born in sin. We sin because we are sinners. We all, uh, Romans 5, 12, are guilty for that sin, sinned in Adam and so on. And so mankind is fallen. But uh, you have uh, how many thousand or hundreds of years that go by and God wipes the, fa- the, 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 uh, the, the earth clean of mankind and, and, and uh, leaves only eight human beings. And as those, uh, and Noah and his wife and uh, his three sons and their, their wives emerge from the ark, they set out to overspread the earth. Uh, I, I believe God gave them a commission. I think he even assigned them areas of the world and gave them specific ways in which they were to honor and, and acknowledge him. But what you have, the way the story unfolds in Genesis is through these genealogies. Now it's going to get a little technical here. But I want you to notice something, and I give it to you on the sheet here. Look in Genesis chapter 10 and verse 21. In the, in the genealogy, in the overspreading of the earth, in that portion of, uh, here in chapter 10, as it describes how the, uh, the sons of Noah overspread the earth, we're told in, uh, in verse 21 that, that children were born to Shem. And one of those was Eber. Now you'll see Eber down in verse 24. He's some generations later. That's where we get the word Hebrew. And look at verse 25, to Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Yoktan, Joktan. All right, so you have these two sons of Eber. Now what happens, and I give it to you in reverse order, but in Genesis chapter 10, you have the record of the younger son, Yoktan. And look at Genesis, uh, he's there in verse 25, and then verse 26 of Genesis 10, Yoktan begat Almodad, and so on, and it comes all the way down, uh, and it is this civilization, the civilization of Yoktan, that in verse 
2 of chapter 11, journeyed from the east with a mandate, with a mandate to overspread the earth, a divine mandate. But in verse 2, they found a broad plain, Mesopotamia, the well-watered plain between the rivers of the Tigris and the Euphrates. And they thought this would, and so they determined, you know the story, to build a city and a tower and to make for themselves a name. Now that's one line of Eber. One of his sons was Yoktan. Now notice, if you will, that the other son is Peleg. And that's picked up in verse 16. If you, in Genesis 11 and verse 16, Eber lived 34 years and begot Peleg. Now this is a different line of the same genealogy, but and, and something else is going on in Genesis 11 and Genesis 10. But nonetheless, the point is that this is another son of, Pele, of, of Eber, and uh, a Peleg. Now notice that Peleg is going to give rise to, in verse 26, Abram. So as I give it to you on that sheet there, have I confused you so hopelessly? Look at, you have Shem who begat Eber, you got many others, but this is the line. Eber has these two sons, Peleg and Yoktan. Now, here's what I'm, where, the reason I stress it is this. Clearly, folks, as this record is laid out in Genesis, there is this deliberate, this, this, this absolute polar distinction between, on the one hand, the line of Peleg that produced Abraham, who was called by God, and God made him a covenant, and as part of that covenant, he said, look at it in Genesis 12 and verse 2, I will make your name great. So God promises to make Abram's name great. On the other hand, you have the line of Yoktan, and Yoktan and his, his descendants, in defiance of God, and by the way, in obedience to God, Abraham leaves his home and follows God. In defiance of God, the descendants of Yoktan settle in in the plain of Shinar, and they determine, as it says there in verse 4, let us make a name for ourselves. So I would submit to you that the fundamental wickedness, and I'm going to come back to this tomorrow morning, the fundamental wickedness of fallen human culture is this absorption with its self-absorption, this, 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 this narcissism, this, this focus on self and the gratification of what I want. Let us make a name for ourselves. On the other hand, you have the line of Abraham who honors God and has given a covenant relationship and God makes him a promise. I will make your name great. Now, the distinction could hardly be more deliberate and dramatic. Would you not agree? So, what I'm saying to you is that the way this, this story is told, the way the genealogy is framed, is to draw us up, uh, to, to cause us to be drawn up by the contrast between this, this, this family who accepted God's promise and waited, sometimes haltingly to be sure, but waited upon God to make their name great. You know, Abram's name, remember what that name means? Father of many, father of many nations? After God gave him a promise for 25 years, I always think it must have been a little embarrassing to meet somebody new. You know, hi, what's your name? My name's Abram. Oh, you must have a large family. Well, as it turns out, I have no family. <laughs> I have a promise. I'm waiting for 25 years. But in, 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 in course of time, because Abraham haltingly to be sure, but he did believe God made his name great. 
Can you name anybody who was involved in the building of Babel? No, you can't. But God made Abram's name great. But I lose my way. The point is simply, what I want you to catch is that in Genesis chapter 11, as, as we are introduced to, well, let's say it this way, the way the, the story is told, the way the genealogies are laid out, I think it, it, with careful study, it became, becomes very, very clear, undeniable, that a deliberate contrast is being made. And the contrast is between believing Abraham, who is given a covenant, and part of that covenant is, I will make your name great for my name's sake, and on the other hand, wicked, rebellious men who in defiance of God say, let us build a city and tower and let's make our name great. That's the world. Now, one other thing, and I've already given it away, but I would submit to you, and I'll develop this a little bit later on, that when it says there in verse, well, let me just read it. It says in verse 2, it came to pass, of course, verse 1, the whole earth had one language and one speech. I'm in chapter 11. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar. And they dwelt there and they said to another, one to another, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. Now, it's very, very interesting. Everybody acknowledges that this fits so well with, the, with that part of the world because, in fact, uh, stone is, is rare. We, I just spent, many of you have been to Israel, and uh, uh, stone is everywhere. The, the, the Jewish people have a legend, uh, you know, just sort of a story they like to tell, that when God was first creating the earth, he had it all done except for the stones, which were to be scattered over the whole earth. And uh, the angels thus deputized, God just barely started, they were over Israel, and the bag broke. And, and they say that... Uh, when, when, when the workers are in the field trying to clear a field, you know, trying to plow a field, you know, pulling up all those rocks one after the other, they'll shrug their shoulders and look at each other and say, well, you know, the bag broke. And, uh, but uh, not so in Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia, on the other hand, has a, a fine mud that is, is, is very, very good for bricks, and they learned early on to, to burn those bricks in kiln. And actually what it means in verse 3, where, where there where it says, uh, they had brick for stone. The idea is they were able to, uh, to burn those bricks as hard as stone. And that's exactly what they did. And the point is that this was permanent. This was in defiance of God. They weren't going to move on. They weren't going to overspread the earth. They were going to stay right here, the whole bunch of them. And, and, and they had uh, asphalt or tar, bitumen, and it's very, very plentiful there. And you can read anytime you read about uh, ancient Babylon or even modern-day Babylon, but that part of the world and so on, it'll go on and on about the great lakes of Batumen and how it comes bubbles up and so on, and marvelous pitch, and, and uh, they would coat their walls with it and so on, and, and, and which would give a permanency to it, a resiliency and a permanency to it. So the point is, uh, they, 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 they took careful uh, 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 inventory of where they were and what they had, and they said, we believe that we can defy God with a high hand and we will stay here and we will make bricks as hard as stone and we will build us a tower and a city. And that's the point there in verse, verse 4. They say, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower. Now the tower is a tower whose top is in the heavens. Uh, there are various ways to handle that, but let me just say this on the face of it. These people were not silly, primitive people who thought they could do the jack and the beanstalk thing. You know what I'm saying? They, 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 they didn't hope that they could somehow invade the domain of the gods. Uh, the point is that it would be a 
tower with a, 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 a sky high, uh, uh, it would be sky high, it would be very, very high, so that it could be seen. Now we know from all sorts of evidences, uh, archaeological and historical and many references and so on, this is what is remembered as a ziggurat. You've seen pictures of it. It's a stair tower or a step tower. Many believe that in the high, it may have had some connection to astrology and the heavens may have been in the top of the tower. I don't know. I don't, I don't think that's impossible. But the important thing is it was a cultic religious center and it was built in such a way that it, it would be a, a beacon to all the people around and so on. And so here in the middle of the plain, they would build a high tower. And uh, it, was, it was a center of high-handed idolatry. So he says, they say, let us build a city and a tower. You know, I, uh, I have often said that when I think of the city, I'm sorry, when I think of the tower, I think of this or that center of false religion. Uh, we can think of the cults which have dominated for a long time. And, uh, and, and, and I, my blood can, can I, I find it very, very easy to get myself worked up about wicked false religion. We'll talk more about it. But if you forgive me, the, uh, the beautiful overstated Mormon church on the corner in your town might represent the tower. What is it that represents the city, the center of commerce? Well, maybe it's the shopping mall. And, and, and I don't feel quite the natural antipathy toward the shopping mall. But I'm going to tell you something, honest to goodness, and the Lord's had to deal with me over the last several years rather remarkably in this regard. The fact is, and, and, and I want to say that there is absolutely nothing wicked about enjoying the good things of this life. One of my favorite verses, and a verse that I rather cherish as almost my life verses, is Ecclesiastes 5. As a matter of fact, let's go there just quickly, and this by way of introduction. Go, jump over to Ecclesiastes 5. Now, I, this, this is, this is I, I just want to make the point that, uh, well, as I just said, I do not believe, I think the Bible is explicit that God is the giver of all good gifts, and we are surrounded. You know, I hear so many today in, uh, in, uh, in an attempt to uh, uh, argue, uh, in, 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 in an attack upon, upon the God of Scripture, uh, so many will appeal to the problem of evil. You know what I mean by that? If there's a God in heaven, how come there is evil? If there's a good God, how come there's so much evil in the world? I don't want to get into that. I think there's an answer to it. But I always think, well, what about the problem of pleasure? How is it? Is it just an accident that we live in a life that is so abundant with unspeakable delights, delights of every sort, delights of relationship and family, delights of, uh, that satisfy the appetites, the physical appetites that we've been given, all of the, the, the fine things. This is no act. There is a good God. And he has created a world in which there are many, many pleasures. And those pleasures, when, when, when enjoyed in terms, in, 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 in terms it, within the bounds of what God has, has, has uh, you know, the moral parameters that God has laid down, God is pleased. That's what Solomon says. Just real quickly, look at Ecclesiastes 5, and then I'll get back and we'll be done. 
Ecclesiastes 5. Now let me just say, you know what, before, go to Ecclesiastes 1. <laughs> There's just an interesting background here before I take you to Ecclesiastes 5. And I'm not going to try and walk you through the argument of Ecclesiastes, for heaven's sakes. It's rather uh, obtuse at points, but, but it's interesting. And of course, I believe that Kohelet here, the preacher, is none other than Solomon, the son of David. Uh, and uh, there has never been a man, think about this, folks, there has never been a man in all of human history who had greater opportunity to ransack the world for all it's worth than Solomon. If anybody was going to find pleasure and satisfaction and soul fulfillment in the things of this world, what he calls in this book, under the sun, leaving God out, if anybody was going to do it, it would be Solomon. And Solomon gave much of his life. We stood a couple of weeks ago uh, on, on Nebi Samuel. Some of you stood there, and there's some debate. I think it's Mizpah, but right off of Nebi Samuel there on the Central Benjamin Plateau is, is the, uh, the high place at Gibeon. And that's where Solomon went as a young man, just after he had been, been made king. And he offered sacrifice to God, and he pled with God. You remember that? Solomon started so well. He said, I'm just a young man, and, I, and, and God said, ask what you will, and I'll give it to you. And, uh, and Solomon, of course, asked for wisdom. And, uh, and, and, and you remember God's response was, because you have asked for wisdom and you've not asked for long life or victory over your enemies or wealth, or, uh, uh, but it's because you've, you've asked for, for wisdom that you might effectively administer the kingdom that I've given you, that the, over which I've set you, I, I, I'll give you that wisdom and I'll add all of the things. This is exactly, by the way, what Jesus had in mind when he said in Matthew 6, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these other things will be added unto you. But, but the point is, Solomon added, started so well. But Solomon did wickedly, did he not? Remember in Deuteronomy 17, way back in the days of Moses, some uh, 500 years before Solomon, well, at any rate, before, well before Israel had actually demanded a king and was given a king, you remember that in Deuteronomy 17, God had given instructions. When you come into the land and, 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 and you raise up a king, make sure that he's one from among you, one whom I choose. And then he gave three negative prohibitions, you remember? Make sure that he never multiplies horses, wives, and silver and gold. Now, by the way, that's not an accidental list. That is precisely how a king would aggrandize himself in the ancient world. If, if you were a great king, you would, you would be, if, if you were a powerful king, uh, neighboring kings and monarchs and, and even feudal chieftains and so on, or tribal chieftains, would come and approach you and, and ask to make a treaty so that they could pass through your land and so they'd be afforded safety and so on. And uh, you would sign that treaty and in almost every case it would be sealed with a princess. And so the size of your harem was a demonstration of how well respected you were as a king. That's very, very important. Well, we say Solomon quite clearly had two passions in life. One was women, the other, round numbers. You know what I'm saying? 700 wives, 300. You don't do that on accident, do you? It seems to me you're aiming at 700 wives, 300. But never mind. But the point is, the point is that, that, that the, the wives were a means of aggrandizement. Silver and gold was a means of aggrandizement. Horses, because horses were the sophisticated military hardware of the day, but most importantly, they were important for guarding 
highways, guarding international highways. And if you were an important king, you were going to have a lot of people passing through your land and so on. So the point is, and you go to 1 Kings chapter 12, and you get the distinct impression that Solomon has a checklist. You know what I'm saying? I got to take care of the wives. I'm going for the wealth. You know, okay, I got that. I'm going for the horses. And, and Solomon sinned egregiously, and he, he was caught in this passion to make a name for himself. Now, my point is, I lost my way. I believe that Solomon repents of all that. And late in his life, he writes this remarkable book, the third of the books that, that we have from Solomon's pen. And uh, he says in Ecclesiastes, look at verse 13, and this is sort of a, an overall, this is an introduction as his con he confesses, I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven. And this is his conclusion, this burdensome task God has given to the sons of man by which they may be exercised. Now you probably have something like that. This burdensome task, do you have something like that? I'm looking at the New King James. What do you have? Grievous task, something like that. And then at the end, to be exercised with. Now what I want you to see is that's really a play on words because they're, they're both the same Hebrew word. And, and really what he says is that it's a sorry exercise that God has given men to be exercised with. Or it's a sorry business that God has given men to be busy with. So you leave God out, as Solomon did. You ransack the world for all that it's worth. You, you pursue every possible avenue of self-aggrandizement and self-gratification and self-glorification. And you're going to discover that life is a sorry business to be busy with. But then he makes his way all through the next several chapters and demonstrates how one area of pursuit proved futile and so on and another. But in Ecclesiastes 5, he comes to his pure oration. Go over there real quickly. Ecclesiastes 5. This is by way of background and we're done. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 18. He says, here is what I have seen. And I love this verse. He said, it is good and fitting for one to eat and drink. Now, by the way, by the way, good is that biblical word that more than any other sums up the character of God. It is absolutely consistent with the character of God. And fitting means that which is morally suitable that which is appropriate to the standards of God. It is good and fitting. He says that, that a man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life, which God gives him, understanding that God gives him. For it is his heritage, that is, it is the gift of God. And then he says this, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, the idea in the Hebrew is, he has also given him power to eat of it, to receive it, to receive his heritage, that which God has given, and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. What he is saying is this, and I've got to get back to my main point. What he is saying is that it is absolutely appropriate, and God is delighted when you enjoy the good things of this life. But you will only enjoy them if you recognize that God and God alone is able to give you the capacity to enjoy them. In other words, not only does God give you those good things, it's only as you give God the place that he demands and deserves in your life. As you honor him as Lord, as you realize that all that you have is only a stewardship, and that if it were gone tomorrow, that would be okay because it's, 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 it's God's plan for your life. 
how we say, here, here, here's a guy who's, who's fabulously wealthy, and he lives for that wealth, and he finds all of his sense of satisfaction in that wealth, and he is tremendously proud of his wealth, and he is totally victimized by his wealth. He can't enjoy his wealth. He's worried that it might be gone tomorrow and life would be miserable. He's worried that somebody up the street might have more than he. Uh, that, that man is victimized. Now here's another man. He's wealthy, he's a believer, he, he loves God, he realizes that all he has is, is a stewardship from God, and, and, and he, it gives him opportunity to bless others and so on, and he wants to be used of God in that way. If it were gone tomorrow, it wouldn't bother him, because after all, all he wants to do is glorify God. That man has the capacity to enjoy the good things that God has given him. And notice what, what, what Solomon says then in, in, in verse 20. He says this, and he's speaking to this man who has learned to give God the, his place, his rightful place in his life. And he says in verse 20 that that man will not dwell unduly on the days of his life because God keeps him so busy with the joy of his heart. And I always think, now that's a God who is well worth serving. Days go by and you hardly notice because God keeps you so busy with the joy of your heart. Now I'm going to go way back to, to my point in, 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 in Genesis 11. It is a wicked, wicked exercise to, in defiance of God, say we are not going to obey. We will build us a city and a tower. We will worship as we please. We will find all our fulfillment in this life and, and, and we, will, we will make a name for ourselves. That is, that is wicked, and it's a recipe for soul destruction. So I'm going to argue that we need to be very, very careful, but I want to say, first of all, I don't want to confuse you, that I do not believe that God is intrinsically offended by, 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 by your enjoyment of the good thing God's, God has given you. But by the same token... When it is in defiance of God, it is wicked. Now, let me do one other thing here in the five minutes I got left. The book of Revelation is quite clearly laid out. Uh, the, 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 basic, the basic outline is given us in Revelation 119. Write the things which you have seen. That's the vision of chapter 1. Write the things which are. That is that overview of seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. And then write the things which shall be metatauta, hereafter. You're familiar with that. And in Revelation 4, John says, after this, I saw heaven open and I was invited up and so on. You have that remarkable scene in Revelation 4 and 5, how I'd like to stop there, but we haven't got time. But the point is that in Revelation 4 and 5, let me just say this, there is a deliberate parallel between Revelation 4 and 5 and Daniel 7. In Daniel 7, what do you have? You remember? A succession of four Gentile kingdoms, a lion, a bear raised up on one side, a leopard, with wings, and then an indescribable beast with great iron jaws. But what happens after Daniel sees those four? He watches as the heavenly throne room is arranged, and the Ancient of Days takes his seat. And once God the Father has taken his seat on the courtroom or the throne room of heaven, one like unto a son of man appears before him, and he is dispatched to establish a fifth world kingdom, a kingdom of righteousness which will endure forever. In Revelation chapter 4 and 5, you have, after the, the overview of this age, uh, the characterization, if you don't mind, of this age, in Revelation 4 and 5, what happens? The heavenly throne room is convened. 
The Ancient of Days, in this case, God the Father in that beautiful picture of Revelation 4, sits on his throne. The beasts and the elders cry, cry out, worthy, uh, worship him day and night. But you remember what happens in Revelation 5? There is weeping because there is no one who is, who is qualified to take that seal, which I be, believe to be the title deed to the earth. But the announcement is made, no, there is one. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb who was slain. And he steps forward and we sing, worthy is the lamb, and so on. And, and so, again, he is dispatched to establish a fifth world kingdom. Now, real quickly, the means by which that, 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 that messianic kingdom is finally established is described in great detail in, in Revelation basically 6 to 19. It is, it is the unfolding of the 70th week to which we were first introduced way back there in Daniel 9, and it is, as I say, in remarkable detail. There are three sets of seven judgments which alone move the narrative forward. First of all, you have the breaking of six seals. Then you have the blowing of seven, uh, I'm sorry, the, the breaking of seven seals. Then the, break, the, the blowing of seven trumpets. And then the emptying out of seven awful bowls or censers. By the way, real quickly, each of these is so pregnant with meaning to a Jewish audience because indeed uh, 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 they understood what it was for a document to be so carefully sealed. It was an important document. It took one with great authority to open that document. And then you have the blowing of the trumpets, such as was blown every, at every feast day and every Sabbath and so on from that place of the blowing, uh, the, the, the place of the trumpeter on, on top of the uh, southern wall of the temple. And then uh, again and again, when the priest would go in, for instance, day by day to, alter, uh, to, to offer on the altar of incense, he would take a, a pan full of hot coals and it was a, it was burning coals, and so each one of these is very, very real to a Jewish audience. But the point is, just let me take, ask you to take this home with you tonight. You have the, the seals, you have the trumpets, and you have the bowls. That's what moves the narrative forward. Now along the way, and, and, and it is so dramatic and so, I mean, I suppose the, the Father in Heaven would be congratulated for me to be impressed with his with, with the magnificence of this literature, but the book of Revelation is just an astounding piece of literature because with words on a page, it builds the drama so dramatically. And, and what happens is you have, you have, we're moving methodically and you have all of these insets and these pictures such as I've given you here. But here's my point. It is so intriguing to me that after the, the seals have been broken, after the trumpets have been blown after the bowls have been emptied after everything is in readiness and we have been taught again and again after the, the fifth bowl a, 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 the, the martyrs have cried out how long O lord and after the seventh trumpet the angel has pronounced the kingdoms of the earth have become the kingdoms of our lord and we're just methodically and dramatically moving toward this grand moment when jesus will descend and deliver his covenant people and you have the, the pouring out of the seventh bowl. It's just intriguing to me that before that grand denouement, that grand appearance of Messiah, in a moment of almost breathless silence, the drama is held in suspension for two whole chapters. And before Jesus descends, we get the destruction of the city and the tower. And what I'd like to do tomorrow morning is just work our way through very quickly 
those two chapters and see the degree, two things, see the degree to which, I, as, and this is the point I'm trying to make, in the destruction of the city, commercial Babylon, well, let's do it in order. In the destruction of the tower, that is religious Babylon, Revelation 17, and then the destruction of the city, commercial Babylon, in Revelation 18, God's name is so, well, let's say this, the world is wiped clean of the wickedness which we saw gestate there in Genesis chapter 11. And if there is a point of immediate application, once again, it would be this, that if any man would be a friend of that wicked, wicked system, he makes himself an enemy of God. We'll develop it a little more in the morning. Father in heaven, we thank you once again for the fact that uh, with all that we see about us that might be so discouraging and we look upon a world and a culture so desperately fallen, so very, very much in the lap of the evil one, uh, we see the name that we so desperately love, so much reviled. We see things which are so disgusting and, and inimical to who you are, Father, so honored in our culture. And all of it, Father, could be so discouraging were it not for the fact that we know that the day is coming when you are, in fact, going to send your son and the earth is going to be set right and this world is going to bow to the one who, is, who, who, who claimed to be, has proven himself, but has been so long rejected as your Lord and Christ and our Savior. So, Father, we look forward to that day and uh, thank you so much for the opportunity here at the Prophecy Conference to, in many different ways, focus in on it. Go before us and we'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen.